0: Well, good morning. It's good to be back here with you all this morning. I hope you all are a little bit drier than we were last night. (laughs) Uh, You can go ahead and turn your Bibles this morning to Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18, just one page over from where we were just reading a a second ago. We'll be uh, diving in there in a a second. Um, But just to sort of start out this morning, I I think the sin that lies underneath all the other sins is the sin of disbelief. You know, if you go back to the Garden of Eden... Distrusting God and disbelieving God is really the root of all sin. It's disbelieving that God is good enough, that God is able to meet all of your needs. It's disbelieving God from Genesis 3 to now, that is our, really our first fall. Our first sin is disbelieving that God is good enough and he is great enough to meet our needs. That he's not satisfying enough. And the idea is, and the logic, so to speak, of sin is that I can make my own satisfaction, that I can make my own goodness, that I can conjure it up within myself, that I can find it within myself. All, then, transgression is really rooted in that, self-gratification, serving yourself, disbelieving God, and trusting in yourself to meet your needs. I, I think I said this last time, but I think it bears repeating, that we all have a God complex, so to speak, we all think that we can make better gods than God for some reason. We're self-savers and self-justifiers by birth. We really we come into this world and the compass of our heart, so to speak, is pointed towards self-salvation. How can I save myself by what I can do and what I can achieve and what I can accomplish? It's, it's, we come into this world shaking our fist at God, really, and saying, God, I don't really need you. I, I got this. I can do it on my own. And we say that without even really knowing that we're saying that. We say that with the way we live and with the way we interact with people. And we think a lot more of ourselves than we ought to. I know I can say this because I'm a man, but I struggle with pride a lot. <laughs> I, 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 you know, I'm trying to teach myself humility, so to speak. And it's always a constant struggle to think that I need someone else to get me through this. We think that we're good and we think that we are really making it and that we're keeping God's law but really, we're not. You know, I think it's kind of funny that sometimes we think that. That we, as sinful human beings, that we can keep something that's perfectly holy and righteous and good. God's law. That we, I think we forget that, um, where we come from. We forget that we're, we're sinners. You know, sometimes I think we come into church, we're, we're coming and we're clinging to religious resumes, as I like to call them. Religious resumes, reports of what we have done for God, and look at how good that we're doing. And I think those sort of cloud who we really are. Because remember what uh, Paul says? I'm just going to read you these verses in 1 Corinthians 6. He's talking to the Corinthian church, and he says this, "'Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor adulterers, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind.'" Nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But ye are washed, ye are sanctified, but ye are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. And such were some of you. I think those are really important words. Because sometimes I think we forget that that was us. Before Jesus stepped into our lives, that was the picture of us. It's not a pretty picture, but it's us. As Paul says elsewhere in Romans 3, that we were not righteous. We were actually going away from God with all of our strength. And that there is none righteous, no, not one. As Paul says, we have all fallen short of the glory of God. That's where we come from. And we often think that somehow God owes us. By coming to church with your religious resume, so to speak, a report of what you've done, you sort of make God your debtor. You sort of say, look at all this stuff, God, that I'm doing and I have done. Now reward me for that. See how, how confusing that can be? And, and that was the biggest, or um, this is what always got the Pharisees into trouble. You know, I like talking about the Pharisees because... I can relate to them so well. (laughs) I always sort of end up going the way that they did, trusting in myself and and trying to make it on my own. And always I'm reading these and I'm seeing myself in the passage. And I want to say this, is that the biggest threat to a thriving Christian walk, a thriving Christian life, is a lack of daily personal worship. And what I mean by that is that worship gives us accurate views of ourselves you know a lot of times i think we focus on uh, and a lot of these churches nowadays are focusing on worship as an experience that you feel and all those sorts of things and and rightly so worship you do feel certain emotions but worship is not primarily about you as the worshipper it's about god and exalting him and lifting him up and lifting his name on high that's what worship is all about and worship gives us an accurate view of who we are and how much our works really matter Worship really forces us to see that all that God has done, and then anything that we have done, will really pale in comparison. Because what can compare to Christ's cross? Nothing. The truth is, pride really hinders worship more than sin does. See, that's a weird statement to say, but it's true. Pride is the greatest barrier to worship. You know, if sin was really the greatest hindrance to worship, a lot more churches would have their doors closed on Sunday morning, because... We're all sinners. You know, I can say that because I love church. I was just saying that I've grown up in church literally. My grandfather was a pastor for over 30 years. My dad has been a pastor for 17-ish years. And he's been in ministry far longer than that. And so literally, I have grown up in church. (laughs) I've grown up in Sunday school. It's sort of in my DNA. I don't know what I would do if I was not in a church on Sunday morning. (laughs) It's just part of who I am. And... I think all that time in church, I think, has really afforded me a good grasp of how to do church and what goes on in church and everything, even behind, you know, closed doors, so to speak, but behind the scenes. You know, I, I, any, you can look across any auditorium, I and mean, I look across this auditorium too, and there's a lot of diversity. Diversity in and ages and, and backgrounds and family matters and occupations and interests and, and there's young people and there's, there's older people, there's different races, there's different ages, there's different heritage and beliefs and hobbies. There's a lot of difference, there's a lot of diversity. But despite all that, believe it or not, I think there's only two real people that come to church. Despite all of the, the great differences that we have between us, you really only fit into one of two categories. And to really display that for you, I want to talk about the parable of the Pharisee and the publican. Remember that parable? is in Luke 18, verses 9 through 14. Jesus is talking. Let's read those verses real quick. This is Jesus' parable of the Pharisee and the publican, and he says this, And he spake this parable unto him, that is Jesus, unto certain which trusted in themselves, that they were righteous and despised others. Two men went up into the temple to pray, the one a Pharisee and the other a publican. The Pharisee, the Pharisee excuse me, stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank thee that I am not as other men are, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this publican. I fast twice in the week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And the publican standing afar off would not lift up so much as his eyes unto heaven, but smote upon his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone that exalteth himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. You know, Jesus isn't one to mince words. He doesn't really beat around the bush, so to speak. He always gets right to the point, especially when he was dealing with these guys, the Pharisees. He was always very blunt and direct with them. And he gets right to the point here. Note who he's talking to. I like verse 9, because it's really interesting to know the sort of setting for what Jesus is about to say. Verse 9 again, And he spake unto this parable unto certain which trusted in themselves that they were righteous. He's talking to Pharisees, and he's going to use Pharisees in his illustration. That's a pretty gutsy move. It probably was pretty awkward after he used them in his, in his, in his uh, illustration here. But he's talking to Pharisees about Pharisees. He's talking to Pharisees about people who were trusting in themselves for their righteousness. Now, this is their righteousness before God, the righteousness that makes them justified. This is what it's referring to. And so, first of all, let's look at this parable really quickly. First of all, you see the form of their prayers. Really, you see, these two different guys, they come into the temple to pray. The one, a Pharisee, and the one, a publican. The Pharisee was, these guys were were noted in this time to be religious leaders of the day. They were always gone to for studies on doctrine and law and all sorts of things like that. And the publican, he was a tax collector. You could sort of, so to speak, call him an IRS agent, so to speak. You could just think of that. He would go around and he was not very well-liked. And these two guys come into the temple to pray, and they have very different prayers. And the form of their prayers reveals a lot about their character. You see, the Pharisee was very pompous. He was a pompous prayer. He stood by himself, it says. He stood far off, clo- or close to the temple, I should say. He was not wanting to be polluted by all the other people in the temple. He said, I, I'm holier than they are, so I need to be as close to the altar as I can get. I need to be as close to God as possible because I am good. And so he didn't want to be polluted by these other sinners praying, and so he he stood really close to the altar. He thought a lot about himself. The Pharisee was very egotistical. Everything about him just drips of pride. You know, he was righteous in his own eyes. In his own eyes, he was good. He was making it. He was doing all right. And he comes into the temple and he prays that, God, I thank you that I'm not like these other guys, but I am good. I'm making it. You know, see, the biggest mistake I think that we can make is not realize just how needy we are. This to not realize just how great we need the saving grace of Jesus. You know, this is what I said earlier, that pride is the biggest barrier that causes men to disbelieve God. Pride and and arrogance causes you to forget your desperation. And when you think more of yourself than you ought, you stop living and breathing and worshiping the gospel of grace that Jesus has come to establish. You know, one writer said it this way, that you don't just need the grace of the Redeemer, you need the grace to recognize your need of the Redeemer. We don't just need God's saving grace, we need God's Spirit to help us realize that we need that saving grace. Because up to ourselves, we, we wouldn't go after God. As Isaiah 53 says, we would go astray. We would go our own way if we were turned to ourselves. But contrasted with the pompous prayer of the Pharisee is the contrite prayer of the publican. You know, it's very interestingly, he stands far away. Look at what it says in 13. And the publican standing afar off would not so lift up his, so much as his eyes unto heaven... He was far away from God's altar. He knew his sin and he wouldn't even lift up his eyes towards heaven. He didn't even count himself worthy of looking unto God. He knew in his heart how vile he was and he didn't count himself worthy to even look at God. The publican doesn't even want to be near such perfection because he knew that he was stained with sin. You know, I think of David in the Psalms, where he says in Psalm 8, that when I consider thy heavens, the works of thy fingers, the moon and the stars, which thou hast ordained, what is man that thou art mindful of him, and the son of man that thou visitest him? You can sort of hear that in this prayer, if you sort of read between the lines, so to speak, that this this publican was really saying, God, I, I, I can't even be here, why would you even think of me? Why would you even come to show me mercy, but God be merciful to me, a sinner? He doesn't even count himself unworthy. And I think that also shows that what we need to pray for isn't necessarily that we, that we get better, but that we believe stronger. I think that, just like I said earlier, is that the greatest sin is disbelief. I think the greatest, our greatest need is to have stronger belief in what God has established, and what God has done. You know, our failures, though, often lie in us doing too much, but in believing too little. Just as we said in, 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 in chapter 17, that if you had faith as the grain of a mustard seed, we already do a lot. <laughs> and sometimes I think we cloak our neediness with our busyness. You see, we try and do all this stuff to make us look like we, are, we really got it all together. That we have everything in order and we don't need God because we're doing so much stuff. But really, our prayer would be to know that we are needy, desperate sinners. And to believe all the more in God's saving grace. As Mark 9.24 says, And straightway the father of the child cried out and said with his tear, Lord, I believe. Help thou my unbelief. Remember that story? The father, his, his, his daughter was healed straightway by Christ Jesus. He healed her from dead. And the father says, Lord, I believe, but help thou my unbelief. That's sort of the prayer of this publican. Lord, help me believe in what you have done, and then help my unbelief, because it resides still. Lord, I believe, but help me to believe stronger, believe better, believe greater. Spurgeon said this, that believing in the great mercy of God, and though your sins are but abundant, you will find that the Lord will abundantly pardon. There is abundant pardon, abundant forgiveness, great, great forgiveness with the Lord Jesus. As Isaiah 55, 7 says, Let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts, and let him return unto the Lord, and he will have mercy upon him. And to our God, he will abundantly pardon. Or you can say that he will freely forgive, or he will forgive generously. That's with the Lord Jesus. Abundant pardon, free forgiveness. And I pray that that's what we would believe in all the more. But not not only the, the form of their prayers, but the substance of their prayers. It really reveals a lot about them. I think that when they pray, both of these guys, the Pharisee and the publican, I think it really reveals a lot about their heart. What they pray about reveals a lot about their heart. You see, the Pharisee, his prayer was pious. Very, very pious. Very, very, so to speak, religious. He begins his prayer, and if you can call it a prayer, and he's profoundly ignorant, I believe, of his own heart. He doesn't even realize how needy he is. Look at again his prayer. Verse 11, the Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank thee that I am not as other men are, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this publican. I fast twice in the week, and I give tithes of all that I possess. You notice the five I's. (laughs) He's speaking the whole time, and he's saying, I, I, I. I am doing this, and I am doing that, and look at, Lord, what I am doing the Pharisee thanks God that he's not like these other people, but that he is doing something. The Pharisee thanks God that he's not uh, unjust or unrighteous. He's comparing himself with all the other people around us, around him. He's saying, I- I'm not as bad as-, as that guy over there. I'm not as bad as him. See, I- I'm doing okay. I'm not as bad as that publican over there. He robs from people every day. I, but me? Look, I give tithes of all that I possess. That's why I deserve your mercy, God. He's boasting in his morality, and his, his sort of appearance of religion and faith. And he brags to God over his purity. Look what I'm doing, God. I am giving all that I possess, and I am, I'm not as these other people are. I'm fair, and I'm just, and I'm giving, and I'm generous. He's boasting in himself. But as Jesus said to the other Pharisees in Matthew 23, inside he's full of dead man's bones. If you flip over to Matthew 23, I I want to read those verses really quickly because I think they're very important. Matthew 23, here Jesus is likewise talking to Pharisees. And this whole passage is really a grand scathing of these guys who were trusting in themselves. Look at verse 25. Of Matthew 23. This is in the middle of his discourse. And Jesus says, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you may clean the outside of the cup and of the platter, but within they are full of extortion in excess. Thou blind Pharisee, cleanse first that which is within the cup and the platter, that the outside of them may be clean also." Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for ye are like unto whited sepulchers, which indeed appear beautiful outward, but are within full of dead men's bones, and of all uncleanness. Even so, ye outwardly uh, also outwardly appear righteous unto men, but within ye are full of hypocrisy and iniquity. What a grand, grand indictment of these guys. They were boasting in their appearance, in their outward forms of religion, and saying, look at what I am doing. But within they were full of iniquity. And he was saying, look, I don't extort people, but extortion is within my heart, as Jesus just said there. See, they were full of dead men's bones. The Pharisee compares himself to these other men to make himself appear better. You know, the Apostle Paul said the same thing to a church, and he was saying... Don't compare yourselves amongst yourselves. Because the idea is, we can appear better when we compare ourselves with each other. Like my wife, she could probably appear better than me. She reads her Bible probably more faithfully than I do. She has a stronger belief in God with her prayer life. So she could compare herself to me and look better. But to do so would ignore the fact that that's not our measuring stick. You and you and you, anyone here is not my measuring stick for righteousness. You know what it is? The Lord Jesus Christ. What he says in Matthew 548, that's our measuring stick. Matthew 548 says, be ye therefore perfect as your Father in heaven which is perfect. That's our barometer. That's our measuring, that's our measuring tape. Are you, that's what we have to measure up to if we want to get to God by our goodness, and our works, and our religion. But see, the point of Jesus saying that, if you remember Matthew 5, let me, let me just say this. <laughs> Matthew 5 is the Sermon on the Mount. There, really, Jesus begins, and what he begins by saying is, is that you think that this is the law? Well, this is really what it is. Because if you remember that passage, he says you think that if you have adultery with a woman, then that's the sin. But even if you just look upon her with lust, you have committed adultery already in your heart. Or you think that if you kill someone, that's breaking the law. But I say if you even look against your brother and hate him and have anger towards him, you have already committed murder in your heart. See, Jesus was raising the bar. These Pharisees continued to try and lower the bar of God's holiness. They're saying, I can meet it just because I'm meeting it outwardly. But God is saying, you think it's here? It's way beyond. It's way beyond anything that you can ever do or accomplish. God's law is so much more holy, so much more righteous than we can imagine. And the point of that whole passage was to say, just as the publican says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Because he knew he wasn't making it. See, the Pharisee, he was pious. He thought he was making it. He thought he was checking all the boxes off and crossing all the T's and dotting all the I's. And he was comparing himself with this other publican and saying, I am making it. But our measuring stick is Jesus, not other people around us. The Pharisee is reporting to God of his works. He's reporting to God, look at, look at what I'm doing. Look at verse 12 again. I am fasting twice in the week, and I give tithes of all that I possess. You know, he was really trying to go beyond the law and sort of to make it sound like he was doing good. He, the Old Testament law really only required one fast per year. He was fasting twice a week. And also, he was tithing of all that he possesses. He went beyond the law to try and earn God's favor. You know, I think there's nothing worshipful or grateful or thankful about this prayer at all. You know, Spurgeon said it this way, that prayer is the speaking of a poverty-stricken heart to a rich God. Does that sound like this prayer? No. This sounds like the, a rich heart who is full of himself and crying to God, say, give me more fullness. <laughs> he doesn't know that he is poor and needy. Prayer is really realizing your emptiness and praying for all of Jesus' fullness. And all the attention is not on God, it's on himself. The, The Pharisee was bringing all the spotlight onto himself, and never once does he request anything of God. Never once does he say, God, I need you, but he's saying, God, I got this. You know, John Bunyan, he has a great discourse on this passage, and he says it this way, The Pharisee's righteousness is worth nothing. His prayer is worth nothing. His thanks to God are worth nothing. For that, what he had, for that what he had was scanty and imperfect, and it was his pride that made him offer it to God for acceptance. It was worth nothing. The Pharisee was boasting in himself, but he didn't realize that he was just as needy, if not more so than the, the sinning publican right next to him. But contrasted with the publicans, or the, excuse me, the Pharisees' pious prayer is the publicans' contr- or penit- penitential prayer. You know, look at what it says again in the publican, verse thirteen of Luke eighteen. Standing far off, would not lift up so much of his eyes unto heaven, but smote upon his breast, saying, "God, be merciful to me, a sinner." You could say it this way: "God, be gracious to me, a faker, because I don't have this together." This prayer is brief, it's contrite, it's sorrowful. He's beating his breast, a sign that he was truly remorseful and grieving over his sin. And yet it is full. It is a full prayer. He didn't need to say much more. He cried out for God's mercy and that was all. It reminds me of Psalm twenty-five, eleven, where it says, For thy, thy name's sake, O Lord, pardon my iniquity, for it is great. You could hear that in his prayer. He didn't just call himself a sinner, as it says, but other texts would say that he calls himself the sinner. God, be merciful to me, the sinner. He knew that even if no one else was sinning, he was not not fulfilling God's commands. And he knew himself as the sinner. The publican was honest. He was real. He was honest about how unworthy he was and how guilty he was. He made no excuse for his sin, but just pleaded and, and hoped for God's mercy. Or as it is, as is elsewhere translated throughout your Bible, God's loving kindness. I like that word, loving kindness. We don't really use it a lot, but it comes from a Hebrew word which occurs 248 times in your Bible, at least in the Old Testament. And it has the idea of mercy and love and favor and faithfulness. And it, and it conveys the unmerited favor and faithful love of God. You know, I'm, I'm reminded of this 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 word from Psalm 51. Let me just read you a couple of verses from the f- first part of Psalm 51. You'll know this as David's prayer after he had gone in with Bathsheba. And look at what he says: "Have mercy upon me, O God, according to Thy loving kindness, according to the multitude of Thy tender mercies. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin." For I acknowledge my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. His sin was before him. The publican knew that he was guilty. And this is, I think, the cry of every worshiper. Every churchgoer should be this. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. A prayer of humility and a prayer of honesty and the realization that we are hopeless and lifeless. And we are literally, as it says in in Romans and Ephesians, that we are dead without God's life. The life of His Son. That's what this prayer is realizing. God be merciful to me, a lifeless, hopeless, dead sinner. Dead in trespasses and sins, as it says. But not only that, look at also next the results of their prayers because this is really where we get to the meat of this passage that after their prayers there were very two far different ends the pharisee receives condemnation look at verse 14 again i tell you this man went down to his house that is the publican went down to his house justified rather than the other for everyone that exalteth himself shall be abased and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted you know he departs from the temple confident in himself He's braggadocious of his works, and he leaves there saying, I did a good job. I did it. But he doesn't realize that he is condemned before God. Because behind Jesus' affirmation of the publican is, is his also condemnation of the Pharisee. It's there. You just have to read between the lines, so to speak, that he's not justified. He is not accounted as righteous. He's not approved. He is not accepted before God. By handing God his religious resume, so to speak, the Pharisee tried to make God his debtor. But to be justified means to realize that you are spiritually bankrupt. That's what, coming to salvation, before we come to salvation in Jesus Christ, we have to realize that we are bankrupt sinners. We have nothing to offer God to sort of balance the scales, to offer him that is worthy of anything. One writer says it this way, that one of the hardest lessons for man to realize is that everything that God does for us is by his grace. Man is so eager to have some credit for his blessings that it is difficult for him to admit his utter spiritual bankruptcy. And I would say that's true. I'm learning myself to realize that I am spiritually bankrupt and I need Jesus but relying on your performance relying on what you are doing to get to heaven will always leave you wanting as it did this publican as it did this Pharisee excuse me he left that day wanting he believed that he was righteous but he was full of dead man's bones but whereas the Pharisee received condemnation the publican receives justification He departs with God's favor and acceptance simply because he boasted only in the Lord's mercy and not on anything that he did. The publican knew the vileness of his heart and he knew that his only hope was God's grace. And that's where he put everything on the line. He put all of his hope and his trust in God. And the publican walks away justified. I tell you, verse 14, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. He didn't hide. He didn't try and cloud his his guilt with his works. He knew he was a sinner. And he said, God, I can't hide from you, but God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And this is the point, that the publican knew the enormity of his sins, while the Pharisee, presumptuously ignorant of his own heart, The outwardly worse man was accepted than the one who was apparently better. It doesn't make any sense to us that the Pharisee was not accepted and the publican was. The guy who was sort of being good and religious was not accepted by God, but the one who was extorting people and stealing from people, he was accepted. And you know, this is the wonder of God's grace. The wonder is that its very objects, its very people that are made for it are those who are unholy. As it says, or as one writer says it this way, that Jesus came to call sinners to repentance. Not the pseudo-righteous. I like that. That God came to call real, honest sinners to repentance. Not people who are thinking and, and foeing righteousness. The wonder of God's grace is that we who are his enemies are made his friends. Actually, even better, we are made his sons and daughters. That's what verse 14 says, that everyone who is exalteth himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. You are exalted into God's family. As it says in Romans 5, verse 6, for when we were yet without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely will a righteous man, for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man, some would even dare to die. But God commendeth his love towards us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You see, if you are a sinner, you are the very person that Jesus came to save. If you are a sinner, you're the very person for whom the gospel was intended. Those who feel as though they are unfit for grace are the very people for whom grace has come. Remember Paul's testimony in 1 Timothy? 1 Timothy 1.15 says, This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Of whom I am chief. That's who Jesus came to save. He came to save sinners. People who know they are sinners. They're not hiding by their righteousness, but they are saying to God, I know I'm a sinner, but I'm banking myself on your mercy. Spurgeon, in his sermon, he says this, Bring your spiritual poverty before God and not your supposed wealth. If you have a single penny of your own, get rid of it. Perfect poverty alone will discharge you from your bankruptcy. If you have a moldy crust in the cupboard of self-righteousness, no bread from heaven will be yours. You must be nothing and nobody if God is to be your all in all. That's the amazing thing. To realize that we have everything, we must realize first that we are nothing. You think that you, you must have some sort of appearance of goodness and, and righteousness before God. But he's saying that you will never find that. If you falsely believe that you must improve yourself before you can, you can come to the gospel of grace, you are in fact rejecting, rejecting that same gospel. The very nature of grace is that it's undeserved. And I think the hope of this passage is that sinners are the ones for whom the call to worship comes. Sinners are the ones that need church the most. Worshiping, as I said earlier, is all about reveling and rejoicing in the wondrous love of God that has made it possible for us to even be here in the first place. Worship is what's made it possible for us to be here, cognizant of our need and rejoicing in a Savior who exceeds that need. You know, as I said earlier, that this passage shows us people who come to church. I think it does. It does. I think people who come to church are either fakers or they're fugitives. They're people who are faking the religious life, saying, "God, I got this, I'm in control, I don't need your help." Or they are fugitives. They say that, "God, I am undone, I'm unworthy, I need your mercy." Really, those are the only two people that come to church. In either way, the church is always filled with sinners. <laughs> Isn't that glorious? The church is always filled with sinners, either ones who are sinning or ones who are saved sinners. Well, either way, we're sinners. And fakers are really just sinners who are reveling in their religious resumes. They're coming to God saying, Look at what, what I'm doing. You know, your resume is a report of your accomplishments, your worthiness, your capability to perform the job, to perform the task. And we do that sometimes with God. Look at my resume, God. Look at how good I am. I'm tithing in a week. Look at how much I'm tithing and giving of myself to you. Look at how much I'm doing and look at how many, or as this Pharisee would have said, look at how many times I did not speak back against that person. Look at how many times I didn't say a bad word to that person who cut me off in traffic. Look at how many times I didn't lose my temper. You're coming to God with your religious resume. You're deluding yourself by goodness and hoping to see others see how good you are. That's what this Pharisee was doing. He was coming to this temple and saying, look at how good I am. But besides that, you could also be a fugitive. A person who is sinning and knows he is sinning. And all he can come to God with is his sin. The only thing that we can come to salvation with is sin, and he knows how much he needs God. The fugitives are like this publican. They're not persisting in pretend righteousness, but they're surrendering as a penitent fugitive who ceased his running. God's gospel is the good news that you have been found out. You've been exposed. He knows your sin, and yet he died for you anyways. As Spurgeon says it this way, the gospel is especially and definitely and distinctly addressed to sinners, to those who know how guilty and needy they are. Our only option is to come to church, to come to worship as penitent, needy beggars, spent out fugitives who know that they need grace and rest that only God can provide. That's how we come into worship We mustn't come to church, so to speak, clinging and white-knuckling, so to speak, our religious resumes. We must come as we are, empty and, and broken and desperate for the Spirit's filling, for the Savior's rescuing and the Father's loving. That's what we come to church for. As one writer said it this way, that we only come to church with a catalog of sins in our hands. Not a religious resume, but a catalog of sins. Saying, God, I am a sinner and I need your mercy. Here's all the sins that I need to be forgiven of. The only way that we can come to church and worship God rightly is to recognize our deep and desperate need of him. Salvation by grace alone is only understood by those who know that they need it. This Pharisee wasn't understanding that he needed God. He was saying, I don't need you, God, I got this. Salvation means not the reward of the righteous, but the cleansing of the unrighteous. Salvation is meant for the lost, the ruined, and the undone. And thankfully, I can say that that's me. I'm lost and I'm ruined by sin, and I know that I can bank on Jesus' mercy. We will never know how good God is until we first know how bad we are. Until you would first admit how needy you are, you will never be able to experience how great God can meet that need. We need to be told of this truth, that we've all turned away from God, as Paul says. That we've all fallen short of his glory, and that we need to face the harsh reality that we are dead in trespasses and sins. And that in us, Paul says, that dwelleth no good thing. And that only when we are finally able, with this publican, to admit that we are dead will be able to stop resisting Jesus, resisting his grace. The only way to exaltation, one writer says, is through the understanding of our own nothingness and in the acceptance of all things as coming from the grace of God. The sinner who acknowledges his own sinfulness and throws himself on the grace of God as the one who will reach heaven. That's what that verse 14 is meaning. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. The Pharisee was boasting in his everythingness, in what he was doing. The publican was saying, I am nothing, but God be merciful to me, a sinner. What are you banking on? What are you trusting in? What are you relying on as you come here to worship every single week? Is it to be seen? Is it to be known? Is it to be seen by others and say, look at how faithful I am. Look at how involved at church I am. Or is it to know that I'm coming to church because I need Jesus. I'm coming to church as a penitent fugitive knowing and stopping my running. Saying, God, be merciful. To me, a sinner. Are you a faker? Or are you a fugitive? Either way, there's mercy here for you. There's grace here for you. Let's pray.